book of Revelation chapter 11. Last Sunday after the service, uh, Jim came up to me and made the remark that op-amp technology and electron therapy are relatively simple compared to the book of Revelation. didn't quite know what to say about that. But I would have you remember that the purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal, not to conceal or to be difficult to understand. What is required is a proper vocabulary of metaphors, of similes, um, images, which one finds in the Old Testament or what is known as the Old Covenant. And by the way, I should just tell you as an aside, generally, whenever Jim speaks to me about the sound system or about his work, I listen and then I tell him I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm sure that you're right. Um, Gia has spoken to me about dancers vocabulary, uh, not not of language, but of movement. Um, And again, I, I don't know what that means, but she and those involved with dance do. My responsibility in leading you through the book of Revelation is not to make it obscure or difficult to understand, but quite the opposite. And the key is the vocabulary. If we have the right vocabulary, then we will understand it. And we get the vocabulary from the Old Testament. The problem with many, in my opinion, is that they approach the Bible, but even the book of Revelation, the way that many people do when they buy a new gizmo, and I'm, I'm sure that none of you are guilty of this, so we'll talk about those other people. Um, actually, I am guilty of this. That they buy something that requires some assembly or requires some work, and they refuse to read the directions. Generally, it is said that this is true of men more than women, that they get it out of the box and put it together, and then when it doesn't work, they call tech support, you know, they call an expert, that will tell them to fix what is wrong. I think that this is the same way it is with the book of Revelation. People just jump in without knowing the rest of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and then they look for experts to bail them out. And my expression or my experience has been that oftentimes experts are just as lost as those they are seeking to lead. My job as your teacher is not to be the expert, but to teach you how to study the text. It's been suggested that in studying the book of Revelation, we might get lost in the details and then lose our understanding of what is being written. There's something that I want to remind you of, and I'm sure that you know this, but just to remind you, it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit from the study of Scripture. You don't have to understand everything about the Bible in order to profit from Scripture. Scripture is inexhaustible, I think, in its richness. And we will never in this lifetime be able to fully understand its depths and mysteries. But the main points are clear, so that we can know what we are to believe and how it is we are to act. Paul wrote to Timothy, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is true also of the book of Revelation. It is useful for teaching. I found a story this week about the book of Revelation that I thought I'd share with you. I'll just read it to you. A group of seminary students finished playing basketball in a gym. They noticed the janitor in a corner reading a book. What are you reading? The Bible. What part of the Bible? Revelation. The seminarians thought they'd help this poor soul. Do you understand what you're reading? Yes. They were astonished. What does it mean? Jesus is going to win. The main points are clear so that we know how, what it is we are to believe and how it is we are to act. We saw this at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, that John writes to those that they are to hold true to the word of God. They are called to endure and to stay pure. Our passage last week had a lot of details. Um, John is commanded to measure the temple, the altar, to count the worshipers, but to exclude the outer court because that's going to be trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. Then we have the two witnesses who have great power, the power that we see in the Old Testament accorded to Moses and to Elijah. But then they are put to death by the beast and the world rejoices. They are raised to life and then they are taken to heaven. Following this, there's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city falls, 7,000 are killed. The rest are converted, that is, they give glory to God. One might get lost in the details of such a passage, but the main points are clear. What we find in chapter 11 are two visions that are intended to show the believer that God will preserve his people in the midst of judgment. The seven seals, the six trumpets thus far, the seventh one is about to come. It does not mean that they will not suffer or possibly even be put to death, as was the case with the two witnesses, who were not only put to death, but publicly humiliated. That is, their dead bodies were left out for three and a half days, which is contrary to Jewish custom. The people came to look and gloat over them, and people exchanged gifts to celebrate the deaths of these two witnesses. However, as we saw, it's not the end of the story. And this is important to John's readers. It's important to us as well. While we are not in control of our lives and the outcome of our lives and history itself, we do know that someone is in control. Someone is the Lord of history. And I mentioned this last week at the end of the sermon. We need a theological interpretation of disaster. One that recognizes that God acts in such events as captivities, defeats, and crucifixions. The Bible can be interpreted as a string of God's triumphs disguised as disasters. We see it as a disaster, but it is in fact God doing his work. And as John writes to the people of his generation, some of them will personally feel the, the power of, of the judgments that are going to happen. Some of them will actually be in Jerusalem when these things happen. Others will hear about it, will know that it's happened to loved ones. John wants them to know God is in control, and God will take care of them. And we should not lose sight of this truth for all the details. The details are important, I think, but we need to get the main point, and that is that God is in control. I've told you before that the book of Revelation has as a central theme the idea of worship. Uh, in some passages, I think you may not believe me, 
In our passage today, I think it requires little explanation on my part, very little persuasion on my part for you to see that this is a passage that deals with worship. Our problem today is to see judgment in this particular passage. Um, Follow along, if you would, as I read uh, verse here in Revelation 11, beginning at verse 15, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then the Lord's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. We've been told earlier that there are three woes. The second woe has passed. We're waiting for the third. And just to remind you, these three woes are with the last three trumpets. There are seven trumpets. The first four, we have the plagues, uh, which are like the plagues that came on Egypt. Then five and six are of a spiritual nature. These demonic hordes that come out of the abyss, that come up from the Euphrates River and come down. We're still waiting, though, for the seventh the trumpet the third woe that is about to come. It's actually introduced, if you look in chapter 10, at verse number 7. But in the days when the seventh, trump, uh, seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And as we saw when we went through that, the mystery is this, that God's people will now not simply be an ethnic group, But now the Gentiles are being brought into the family of God, into the kingdom of God. And there will be no distinction between Jew or Gentile. They will be called the children of God. Let me just read to you one passage from Ephesians. Paul wrote to to them, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus, made possible because of the work of Christ. And as the 24 elders sang a new song in chapter 5, now we hear them again here in chapter 11. And with this in mind, let's look at the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet, and in response, in heaven, there are loud voices. You might not remember, but do you remember the seventh seal? What happened when they broke the seventh seal? There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now the seventh trumpet sounds, and there is not silence. There is quite the opposite. We have loud voices, and we are told that they say, the kingdom of this world has become his kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. By the way, do these words sound familiar to any of you? Do you hear them set to music? They are from Handel's Messiah. We, he, they are not from Messiah, Handel got them from this particular passage, from the Hallelujah Chorus. 
And how wonderful is the message that these words convey. It is, simply put, Jesus is going to win. Jesus will reign. The kingdom here, by the way, does not refer, I think, to a political entity as such, you know, territory with borders and boundaries, but rather to dominion, to the exercise of rule. And in this world in which Satan had ruled, in some sense, now the kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In a real sense, God has always ruled. God has always ruled. Nebuchadnezzar confesses this after he has been living like an animal for seven years and he comes to his right mind. God brings him to his right mind. He says about God, he does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? But part of God's rule includes satanic and human rebellion which contradicts God's revealed will. God says, thou shalt not murder, and people murder. But God still rules. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What John hears with the loud voices is the final answer to this prayer. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Peter confirms this on the day of Pentecost. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so in response to the seventh trumpet, we hear the words that Christ will reign forever and ever. What do the elders do? We see in verses 16 through 18 that there is a response. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God respond to this declaration of Christ's universal rule. Just to remind you about the 24 elders, John describes them in chapter 4. They are sitting on thrones. He tells us that there. He tells us here as well. And as we saw, the 24 refers to the worship system of the Old Covenant, that the priest the responsibility of the priesthood was divided up into 24 divisions. So they are priests because there are 24. They are kings because they are sitting on thrones. Therefore, they represent the church, that we are a royal priesthood. From chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. In chapter 3, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. The 24 elders represent the church in heaven. And what do elders do? What did the 24 elders do? What is the church supposed to do? They worship. They fall on their faces and they give thanks. And why do they give thanks? Well, they'll tell us in a minute, but again, to remind you, I mentioned earlier in the series that the key to worship is the answer to the question, why? You see, worship is not a mindless activity without direction, without purpose, without reason. I think sometimes in the modern world, because everything else is so structured and and so specified, that worship is seen as sort sort of letting loose and just sort of letting your spirit or your mind wander sometimes. No, worship is to be directed toward God. 
Our worship has a goal. It has a direction. It has a purpose. It has a reason. As the elders see it, the reason is this. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. There is reason to worship God. You see, worship is also driven by the question, who? That is, worship is directed toward a specific person, the Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. That's one of the reasons God has revealed himself in Scripture, so that we can worship him appropriately. Because otherwise we might end up worshiping trees, and some people do. Or worship rocks, or something that we've made. No, God says, this is who I am. And then we, we recognize, or we should recognize, by his grace, that he is worthy of worship. That he and he alone is worthy of worship. We need to know who we are worshiping. Because ultimately, worship is not, it's not about me. And, and yet, and I think in the modern church, worship seems to be so much about the worshiper rather than the one who is being worshipped. The elders say the time has come for judging the dead. And I think the judgment here is not simply on those who have done wrong, uh, but on those who have done right. The judgment is not necessarily negative, but rather a sort of, have you done the right thing? Are you a person who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ or not? But I would remind you of what Jesus said in Matthew 23, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. We'll see more of this as we go through the book of Revelation. The time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, your saints, those who reverence your name, both small and great. It's not just the religious leaders. It's not just the people we all know by name. All of God's people, both small and great. The time has come to judge those who destroy the earth, for destroying those who destroy the earth. If you think about it, this may seem very much out of place. You know, judging the dead, rewarding the saints, the prophets, that all. But then destroying those who destroy the earth. I mean, I thought we were talking about spiritual things. I mean, was God mad with those who pollute the earth? Again, we need to look to the Old Testament. Let me just read you a passage from Leviticus 18. Which, if you look at the first part of Leviticus 18, it's, it's all about sexual things that are forbidden. These are the things you should not do. You should not do these things. And then, toward the end of the chapter, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, the things that have been described, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. There is a recognition that people commit sins, and this destroys or defiles the land. Now, you know, we don't have a problem when this comes to pollution. We know that if people sort of put pollutants in the ground, that that affects the ground, and... You have to clean it up or it, it will take a long time for it to break down. You know, when it comes to pollution, I think we don't have a problem with that. Where we have a problem is understanding that when I, let's say, when I tell a lie, just something I say, it's like, well, how can that affect creation? 
How can that destroy the land? We are very much connected to creation. It's in the modern world, and we've seen this in Sunday school, how that, we, that we've begun to be separated from nature. And Alicia mentioned this today, this one particular quote, that language has been separated from nature, that people can say whatever they want. No. Our sins defile God's creation, and God will destroy those who destroy the land. God cares about his creation. I think we should as well. And then we come to verse number 19. Here the seventh trumpet. Here we are told that God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but I would underline his covenant because that's what this has all been about. God made a covenant with Israel. They had broken the covenant. And now heaven has been opened. The temple has been opened. And there we see the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. The language, by the way, is very much what we find in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a wonderful psalm in which... David describes how that he was in a desperate situation and he cried out to God for God to deliver him. It's a long psalm. I'll just read to you a part of it. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstorms and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. What John hears is the coming of God, described in Old Testament language. You can go back to Exodus 19, when God came to Mount Sinai to give Israel the Ten Commandments, with the dark clouds and the thunder and the earthquake, and, and people were, were, were very scared. And they finally they told Moses, listen, we're going to stay here. You go up there because this is just too much for us. What John describes is the coming of God. But if you look at this passage, if I were to ask you, where is the judgment of the seventh trumpet? Well, some might say it's in verse number 17. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. But I would argue that it is also found in verse number 19. When God's temple in heaven was opened. You might say, well, how is this judgment? Because the earthly temple is about to be destroyed. And only the true temple is going to remain. That is God's people. Do you remember I read to you several weeks ago from 1 Corinthians 3? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. At the beginning of the chapter, here chapter 11, John is told to measure the temple, to count the worshipers. 
God's people. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of His Covenant, represents the presence of God with His people. It is said that God stayed between the two cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And now God's presence is with His people. From 2 Corinthians chapter 6. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. What we see in verse number 19 is judgment expressed in a positive form. So positive that we may miss the negative aspect of it. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There is a new temple. It is the church of God. And God's presence is going to be with his people. Jesus said something that I think might help us here in Matthew 21. He says to those who are listening to him, the Jewish people, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. In the language here, Revelation, the earthly temple is going to be destroyed. And God is going to open heaven. The 24 elders of the church, there will be a new temple. A new temple will replace the other one. The other one will be destroyed in judgment. And a new one brought in its place. So, we've looked at the details. Let's go back. What is the main point of this particular passage? We'll ask the janitor. He understood the book of Revelation. Jesus is going to win. Jesus will reign. The problem is, it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always seem like that. And so we need to be reminded, and John reminds us as he writes this book, that he will reign forever and ever. Part of his reign involves judgment. And as we will see in the weeks to come, John's not finished describing the judgment. But now he will see it in terms of conflict and the church being persecuted. But we have this wonderful chapter, chapter 11, in which God assures us that he takes care of his people. He is the Lord of history and Jesus will reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we confess that so often we jump in without looking at the instructions, without looking at the whole, and get somewhat discouraged. Or sometimes we get so lost in the details that we sort of throw our hands up and say, I I, I just don't get it. We thank you that your word is clear if we would read it, if we would study it, and listen to your spirit. Here in this most difficult book, that oftentimes seems to be the most difficult book, your truth is plain, that Jesus reigns, and he will reign forever and ever. 
problem is circumstances in our lives, in our societies, even in history, seem to shout the opposite. We thank you for what John writes, what you reveal to him. That we would be reminded that your triumphs are often disguised as disasters. That we don't see the whole picture, but that you are the Lord of history. And as the Lord of history, you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might redeem a people that he might redeem his creation. And today we remember his death. And we give thanks for his sacrifice. And we do this in the name of the Lamb who was slain. Amen. The passage that I read when we have communion is taken from 1 Corinthians 11. Just have you think of, as I read this, here we see triumph disguised as disasters. Betrayal, body broken, bloodshed, proclaiming death. And yet it is through these things that we have God's gift. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
stand together and sing the doxology. Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Before you all leave today, we want to celebrate Henry's birthday. Um, can we have Henry come out and we will sing for him? We have a cake for him upstairs. John, you want to play for us?